Hi, this is Doug Bradley, welcoming you to the Hellraiser podcast. And you'd better keep listening to the Hellraiser podcast, or I will tear your soul apart. Thanks, Doug. And here we are once again with the Hellraiser podcast. I'm Peter, and this is Phil. Hello, everyone. Hello, everyone. And today we're going to be talking about Gary Tunnicliffe's short film, No More Souls, and also the Hellbound Heart, the original novella that Clive Barker wrote that he based the first Hellraiser film on. So before we get into that, we just want to remind you all that we are going to be doing a feedback podcast as well. So we want you to get all your feedback coming in. We've had some really good stuff already, but do keep it coming in. Hellraiser podcast at hotmail.co.uk or Twitter at Hellraisercast or on our Facebook page. So keep it all coming in. We've had some really interesting things, especially about Hellraiser Revelations, which is still pretty new. Yeah, it's been really interesting to read the stuff, and I love it that, you know, we've had loads of people agreeing with us, loads of people disagreeing with us, you know, about our review of the film, and it's really cool because, you know, this podcast is not us setting ourselves up as being the people who are right, or (laughs) that we know, you know, the definitive thing on something, it's just our sort of little views. It's our opinion, It's lovely to, to, it's even lovely to read people going, oh, you know, this is complete, you know, wrong. You're idiots. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, you know, I really like it, and it's it's really great for us all to be discussing the films. Well, it's it's really great because some people say, I think you guys are wrong because of this, 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 and then we can go... Oh yeah, I suppose actually you've got a point there. Yeah, some people have raised some really interesting points that um, you know I hadn't maybe considered in the other time. The other time, no, I mean we were quite negative about Revelations, <laughs> to put it mildly. Um, and I just want to say for the record, we I, I still think that I think the story is really good. And if it had been done better with more time and money, then it, it would have been the film would have been quite good. I think. Yeah, it's a it's a real shame. But I mean, I, re- I still think it's really flawed. It is, and recently um, Gary Tunnicliffe put a, a sort of little yeah. piece up on his website about it where it was kind of a justification or an apology, if you want, or just his side of the story. Um, and it was really lovely to read it, um, and I kind of felt sorry for him. A little bit, yeah. He was going on about how he wasn't on set and they changed some things, and he saw it, and it kind of implies he was a bit disappointed, but then at the end of it he says, I've actually watched it again recently, and I think it's quite good. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, we can only react to what comes up on the screen, basically. Well, um, yeah, exactly. But yeah, you know, I think we had a really visceral reaction to that film because and, we were yeah, one of the just reasons very disappointed. Is, one of the reasons that people have said it might be because we both said in the podcast that we were really excited about it and we sat down with, you know, we hoped it was going to be brilliant. And the people who said they thought it was going to be absolute rubbish sat down and were pleasantly surprised. <laughs> so maybe if we had gone in thinking this is going to be a pile of crap, then we would have been... We would have liked it a little bit better than we did. <laughs> it's not a good basis to sell your films on, though, is it? It's you're not. Like, put it on the poster. And the other thing is, a lot of people are saying, you know, for what it was, it was quite good. You know, it wasn't bad. And for all the problems that it had, the film wasn't too bad. And that's true, but that's not good enough, I don't think. Well, again, I mean, I mentioned this on the last podcast. I think it really speaks of the dedication and goodwill of the Hellraiser fans. Yeah. That they are really trying to find the good in these things and trying to sort of find out uh, how, you know, to look into the production of the films and say, okay, this didn't work, this didn't work. But if you actually just strip all that away and just watch it as a film, knowing nothing about, you know, Mm. the production woes, that's when you sort of, you know, that's where we're coming from, I guess. Yeah, and the majority of people who watch the film won't know the -the behind-the-scenes story. Why would they? They'll just say, oh, look, a new Hellraiser film, let's watch it. And they'll watch it and go, there. Anyway, 
We'll talk much more about this uh, on our feedback podcast. And we've got some really good things to discuss from all the films, not just the last one, but all of the films. So do keep anything coming in. Tell us what your favourite film is, what your favourite Cenobite is. Tell us if there's anything that we've said in any of our podcasts that you disagree with, or if we ask any questions that you think you have the answers for, then give us those as well. And we'll chat through the ideas that have come up. Yeah. Right, well, let's move on to our first subject for today's podcast, which is Gary Tunnicliffe's short film, No More Souls. Now, this isn't an official Hellraiser film. This is counted as a fan film. Mm -hmm. It was made in 2004, and it was filmed over one weekend by Gary Tunnicliffe and a bunch of people that were working on the Hellraiser films that were being made at the time, which that's, this was the time when Deader and Hellworld were both being made in Romania. So he's got quite an advantage there already with his fan film, <laughs> being, being <laughs> yeah. already involved in making the Hellraiser yes. films. Bear in mind, yeah, he makes the Hellraiser films, yeah. It, it looks, obviously it's going to look a bit better than most fan films that are out there. But it's not about the look, Phil, it's about the story, uh-huh. isn't it? Okay. So going slightly behind the scenes for a moment, the whole idea for this film came out of the fact that Gary Tunnicliffe was interested in what Pinhead might look like if he was really old. What an old version of Pinhead might look like. So he decided to create an entire story around that image. And what he came up with was this idea of Pinhead years and years in the future, centuries away. Millennia. Yeah. And there's been a nuclear war and lots of and all the humans have been wiped out, haven't they, really? That's what it's saying. Yeah. And the people that went to hell, the Cenobites tortured them and did their little hell things. But now there's been a very long time since anyone new came in and Pinhead is completely bored and fed up. And that's how it starts. Now, I will say we're going to slightly spoil this short film now. Um, so if you do want to watch it before you listen to this, then you can find it on YouTube. It's only five minutes long. It's, it's pretty good. It's on YouTube. Or it, if you've got the Deader Region 1 DVD, it's an Easter egg on that. You can find it. But I'm just going to spoil the end of the film just now. He, he then basically opens the box in quite an interesting way. We'll talk more about this in a minute. And then Chatterer and Bound turn up mm. and kill him. Yeah. And peel his face off and put it on the Pillar of Souls and it ends. Yeah. So it's basically a film about Pinhead's last moments. He's so bored and fed up and doesn't want to wait, as he says, doesn't want to wait another 65 million years for you know, humans to evolve again. And so he can do it all again. Then he decides to give up the ghost and offers himself up as a sacrifice, basically. Yeah, it's sort of, um, the whole film is about, I mean, Gary Tonicliffe, I think, says that it's about Pinhead does his thing, you know, he's uh, killing people, torturing them, and doing his job, he's a harvester, mm. and when there's no more souls to harvest, there's nothing for him to do, it's mm-hmm. actually, time is catching up with him, and physically affecting him, he's physically getting older, he's just running down, and he himself has just got nothing to do, that's what it is. Yeah, it's a film about boredom. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, first things first, Phil, what do you think of the film? I really like it. Yeah, it's good. It's good fun. I think the idea behind this film is brilliant. Yeah, it's great. And obviously, I say it's not official, but it's on an official Hellraiser DVD, albeit it as an Easter egg, but still, they think it's good enough to put on that. So that's something. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if anybody knows what Clive Barker or Doug Bradley or anyone else thinks about this film, but... Um... No, I'd like to ask them. Mm. But yeah, I mean, I think the idea behind it is is a great idea. And actually, this is the kind of thing that I kind of wanted the later sequels of Hellraiser to be about. 
because this is like a situation in the Hellraiser world that's not directly relating to the Hellraiser story of Kirsty and so on. And as soon as in Hellraiser 3, you've got it's all about Pinhead and the film is all about Pinhead and you've got 4, which is kind of about Pinhead but more about the bloodline of Le Marchand. After that, the films aren't about Pinhead anymore at all. And this goes to show that you could do a film about Pinhead on a low budget. Speaking of the budget, the budget apparently for this was $2,400. $2,400, which half of which was spent on him hiring the camera that it was filmed on. <laughs> so that everything else was made for $1,200 or just his mates gathering together and helping out. Yeah, and it's great. It looks great. It does, yeah. There's a couple of moments where it's obviously quite a... Well, it's obviously sort of a, a digital, high-definition digital camera and not film, but, I mean, that's not a problem. You just... Of course he wasn't going to make it on film. That's, you know, that's completely forgivable. But let's you say it looks good. Let's talk about the look of Pinhead himself. Mm. So this is the old Pinhead he's created. He's missing some pins, which is fun. He's well, been kind of falling out, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, he's pulling like them hair. out. At the beginning, yeah. he's pulling out the pins and letting them drop on the floor. Which is basically another metaphor for him realising his time is up and wanting to move on. Mm. But he's got one of his eyes has like glazed over like it's got a cataract in it. Yeah, it's all cloudy. Yeah, so one dark eye, one cloudy eye. And they have done sort of old man makeup. But because Gary Tunnicliffe has done the makeup for Pinhead a few different occasions, it still looks, you know, it looks like Pinhead. It looks like a different version of Pinhead. Mm. I'd say he looks better than... Uh, the one from Revelations, what do you think? I I agree, I really mm. agree. And the costume is, looks good, the costume looks fun. Yeah, yeah, the costume's all very faithful, and um, they've got Chatterer in there and Bound as well. Yeah, it's not, yeah, it's a shame that it's not the original Chatterer makeup, it's the, you know, later Chatterer makeup from Hellworld, um, which is a bit of a shame, you know, who's mentioned as the melted face Cenobite in mm-hmm. the credits. So it's still not quite as horrific as the original chatter from films one and two, but he's still pretty horrible. And you've got his chattering teeth mm. in this one, which they seem to have forgotten about in a couple of the sequels. Mm. But he's back chattering now, which is the whole point of him, hence his name. And Bound, who was used in Hell... I mean, these are the two from Hellworld, so maybe this was this is when this was made, mm-hmm. when they were doing Hellworld. Because these are the only two Cenobites that are used in Hellworld. And Gary Tycliffe must really like Bound. He's used him a few times. Yeah. If this was filmed at the same time as Hellworld, I think it's really interesting that um, Gary Tycliffe is doing this short film that deals with a really interesting concept, you know, a really, really good Mm. concept for a film whilst making Hellworld, which, as we (laughs) both know, is not a good film. No. It's a very superficial kind of slasher fare. Whereas the the real idea here of, you know, humans wiping themselves out and the whole system behind the scenes, you know, behind the baseboards, the hell, heaven, the angels, the demons, whatever, having nothing to do, having no more place, I think is a really cool idea. And he mentioned something about having given all these people their own individual hells, which that links back to Hellseeker and Inferno, really. Talking about each individual person has like a huge hell for themselves. Can you imagine that? I love, I love thinking about this, the kind of, the structure of hell. It would literally be like, you know, the whole human race is wiped out at the same time. 
and there'd just be this huge backlog of people where Pinhead's got to take his time with each one of them. And then he does say it takes a millennia, well, you know, that's true, to yeah. assign each person. But this their is the question because hell. the hell we know from the first two films, you only go there if you open the box. So if all the people that died went to hell, this this is sort of implying that this is more like the Christian hell. It is. Is it that was that I think you're saying? That's what I think they're saying in this film because obviously they didn't all open the box. No. But they all ended up in Pinhead's mm. hands. So he is a, a demon, you know, in yeah. service of of the Christian hell, I guess, in this mm. in this film. Which, you know, I'm not necessarily keen on putting that forward. No, it's certainly not what the first films said at all. No, no. This is something completely separate to, you know, heaven and hell. It's Leviathan, and you open the box and you go to hell, and that's the only way of getting there. I mean, that's why Kirsty is up for finding the box in the second film, because she wants to go to hell to find her dad. And you can't just, you know, go there. You have to open the box to get there. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I mean, there's lots of different ways of interpreting it. I mean, you could say there is a heaven and a hell, and the hell that you see in the second one is hell that you will go to if you die and you are a bad person. Oh, but, I suppose so. But, but this is a shortcut to but get this there. Is a, yeah, or that if you open the box, you are subjected to the special tortures <laughs> of the Cenobites. The special pleasure and pain tortures. Yeah, yeah, you know what I mean? I mean, you could easily say that that was the case. Okay. Yeah, you could do. Um, but it's never clear, and then, again, it's another reason why, like Hellraiser, the ambiguity is great. You know, I think in some of the other, I mean, we'll talk about this in other podcasts, some of the comics and some of the other books. You know, there's this sort of feeling that hell and heaven have been abandoned in some way, mm. and you know, they're just kind of still going through the motions, but nobody's really in charge. Like God has left, and Leviathan is completely uncaring, completely disinterested, but still, this happens that people end up in hell and heaven. Yeah. But, you know, it's all open to interpretation. One thing we haven't mentioned is Pinhead is not being played by Doug Bradley in this film because it implies he couldn't afford him at the end. So instead, Gary Tunnicliffe is playing Pinhead himself. Mm. And he does quite a good job, I think. I mean, his accent isn't exactly like Doug Bradley's. He's sort of letting his Birmingham roots sneak in a little bit. But Mm -hmm. um, I think you can kind of forgive him that because it's a fan film. Absolutely, yeah. And he wrote it as well, if we haven't said that. He wrote and directed it. And the writing isn't bad. I mean, it's quite poetic, and it's talking about these big ideals. No, it's good. It's well-written. It's nicely directed. It's very, very short and sweet. Yeah, and, um, gets to the point. Yeah, I think it leaves you... It creates a big impact, because after you, you finish watching it, you you think about the concepts behind it definitely and yeah that's what i like about hellraiser it doesn't have to explicitly lay it all out for you but you start thinking about the bigger things mm. you know what is heaven and hell and do they exist and why are the cenobites there and what are they for and it's a really interesting idea what happens when there's nothing else to do in hell yeah and you you get from the film as well that um pinhead is obviously losing the will literally to exist mm-hmm. but his minions his legion yeah uh the other cenobites are kind of not satisfied with this they want blood yeah. you know it sort of implies that he's the intelligent one and they're just kind of like dogs you know they, <laughs> they want something and he's basically been keeping them at bay mm. for these millions of years but finally they won't be satisfied they want something else and he's going to give it to them yeah which is he opens the box and allows them to kill him 
and in that murder he finds one final slice of sensation as he calls it slice of sensation yeah. yeah that's what the the full title of the film is no more souls one last slice of sensation and mm. that's what he's after he just wants something and so the one last thing will be to feel them stabbing him and killing him mm. and let's talk about when he opens the box in yeah. this film i really like the way it's done yeah me too um it's kind of a bit more dynamic than I've seen in some of the real films, shall we say. Um, because it does some of the same movements where it pops up from the top and stuff. But he does a really interesting diagonal twist with it, yeah. where the whole box twists diagonally. Yeah. Which I really like, which I really think they should have kept in, uh, or put in some of the other films. Because it just looks a bit more interesting. Yeah. So, to sum up, then, we'll move on to the Hellbound Heart now. But to sum up, um, No More Souls, definitely worth watching. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting stuff. Good. Right, now let's move on to the Hellbound Heart. It is not hands that call us. It is computers or iPhones or anything else you might be using to listen to this. I don't know how this bloody thing works. So this is a short novel, a novella, that Clive Barker wrote in 1986. It was first published in 87 as part of an anthology called Night Visions 3. And it tells the same basic story as the first Hellraiser film, with some subtle differences. So let's go, let's talk about it then. First of all, I would say, if you haven't read this, I would very, very much recommend you go out and get it and read it. It's really good. It's brilliant. Brilliant. And especially if you're a fan of the Hellraiser films and you haven't read it, this is where it all came from. This is, this is it. This is the beginning. So let's just talk through the book then. It opens with, like the film, with Frank solving the puzzle box... Now, for those who haven't read the book, who think that Le Marchand, the puzzle maker, was first mentioned in Bloodline, well, you're wrong, Sonny, because it was actually mentioned in this, in the book, in the novel. It talks about the Frenchman who made the puzzle box and even names him as Le Marchand right from the first sentence. But the puzzle box itself is very different in the book to the first film. I quite like it in the book. It's It's really interesting yeah i really like the way it's described in the book in fact i like the way it's described in the book better than the way it appears in the films um in the book it's described as being completely black lacquered outside and when you open it when you there's no way of getting into it there's no signs on it there's no nothing no there's nothing at all no and when you open it inside it's mirrored um, and I think that just is really cool because it just there's just nothing. There's no clue on its surface as to how to open it or that it even opens. No, he only knows it opens because he's been told it has by some guy, the guy that he uh, sold the box to him, a guy called Kircher, who's been he's been told that you can open this box and he just spends hours and hours trying to open it. Yeah, and that's what I really like about it because I've I've been very vocal about how I hate the fact that in the films the box just kind of pops open and <laughs> yeah. you know and all this kind of thing. And I really like the idea that it's got to be a trial. It's got to be something that's earned. That you really go through it to try and figure out how to open this box, and then your reward at the yeah. end is the Cenobites. I think that's really great, and I can understand why they changed it for the film because the visual, the way it's described in the book, wouldn't look amazing on film. It wouldn't be as interesting. I no, think. I, yeah, I can see um, that. So that's fine. I'm, I'm completely happy to have the two different boxes. But in book form, I love this, and I think it's really good. Mm, yeah, me too. And speaking of the Cenobites, there's something that they're called here, which hasn't been mentioned yet on this podcast. I don't think it's mentioned in any of the films. It says that they are theologians of the Order of the Gash. 
Now, this has gone into in comics and other fan fiction and other spin-off things, but the Order of the Gash, I don't think, is mentioned in any of the films, is it? Certainly not in the in the first couple. No, no, I'm pretty sure I it's think not we mentioned probably in any of them. Mentioned it on the podcast yeah. if it was. Yeah, I can't. There might be a no. I don't think there is a reference anywhere. No. And the other interesting thing here is Kircher has told Frank he needs to leave certain things around the room, basically as offerings for the Cenobite, which include a jug of his urine, seven days worth of urine. He's made an altar, as well, which is surrounded by bones, bonbons, and needles. It says, and most interestingly, I think is he's got a plate with doves' heads on it. <laughs> yeah. And Wait. this this is brilliant, isn't it? Yeah. I love this. This was when I was really like, wow, this story is great. Because, again, it's that ambiguity. What are these things that he's trying to call mm. up? And what do they want? Like, they want... They've got bonbons and needles and dove's heads and urine. Mm-hmm. And they want petals strewn across the oh, floor. Oh, yeah, petals as well. I forgot yeah. about that. I mean, this is a sign already that... You should really stop what you're doing. <laughs> yeah. Poor Frank is so jaded and, you know, he wants any experience and he's willing to go for it here. I think doves is such a great animal to use as well because it's a symbol of peace and purity. And mm. He's obviously had to kill these doves and cut their heads off and put them on a plate. Yeah. <laughs> so he manages to open the box after hours and hours of trying and this is when we hear this bell start to ring, which uh, we mentioned, they mentioned it in Revelations, which was a nice callback. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, this bell starts ringing, and that is the beginning of the opening of the box and the summoning of the Cenobites. Mm-hmm. And then they turn up. It's like the film, they say there are four of them, but the descriptions are not the same as in the film. You've not got the ones that we know and love from mm-hmm. the films, but they are described as, you know, like in the films, they've got their flesh punctured by hooks and they've got scars all over their bodies. And the interesting thing here is that it specifically describes that they're clothing is sort of woven into their flesh mm. doesn't it that's really i mean you don't really that probably was done on the original costumes but it doesn't the camera doesn't really linger on them long enough yeah you've got their flesh is uh, punctured with um hooks and so on dusted with ash or something oh yeah oh and they stink yeah <laughs> and it's it implies that they smell really bad but they've kind of covered themselves with like a vanilla smell to disguise it but it hasn't worked very well and it can still smell the putrid stink underneath it oh maybe not maybe not that they try to cover it maybe it's like this the bonbons and stuff like that maybe it is that they oh, they, really? they naturally yeah. have this kind of sweet and sweet disgusting and, sweet and sour filth smell yeah i don't think they'd ever be bothered about covering it up would they <laughs> they'd love it no they wouldn't care would they actually no but there's a really good description of one of them where he's got sort of little hooks in his eyes and he's at the flaps of his sort of eyelids and it's connected to his mouth, so every, every time he speaks, mm. it pulls his flesh apart. It's great. It's brilliant. It's like hideous stuff. But if you've read any other Clive Barker, his imagination for horrific things seems endless. And if you like this, by the way, do go out and buy The Books of Blood, which are his short stories. We'll do those on a different podcast, but they are brilliant as well. Yeah. So I guess what a lot of people are wondering is, is Pinhead there? Mm. Is Pinhead in this book? And the answer is, kind of. <laughs> mm. There's a character with pins all over their head. It's not the same as Pinhead. First of all, it describes its voice as being uh, that of an excited girl. So it's not the deep, bassy, 
Doug Bradley voice that we know, but it does describe the vertical and horizontal grid system on the head and the fact that there are pins, um, or as you mentioned in the first podcast, they're jewelled pins, it says in the book. Mm. Um, it also says that its, its tongue has pins all over it as well. Yeah. Which you obviously couldn't really do in the film because you wouldn't be able to speak. <laughs> but that's something, I said it. The, there's no sexes of any of the Cenobites in the book. Every one of them is an it. Yeah, the, it sort of implies that they're so badly disfigured that yeah. you really can't tell it could be either mm-hmm. and they mention the engineer which is it implies that the engineer is sort of the overseer of the whole thing and we'll meet the engineer at the end of it but you don't see him here you just sort of mention him and that's interesting that there is a kind of implying it's sort of like leviathan but there is an entity that is overseeing the whole thing so that is taken from this book as well hmm and it's here that now that they've turned up that uh, Frank's getting a little bit of an idea that perhaps things are not going the way he planned because well, he's, no. <laughs> he's kind of imagining lots of beautiful women and whores and, you know, undreamed of ecstasies and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and here it's very interesting as well because they actually ask him, what do you want? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they do. Uh, and he says, pleasure. Yeah. Do you know about that? <laughs> they say, oh, yeah, we know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, we know all about that. And then there's this really interesting section where all of his senses are taken up to the nth degree. Like, his, he can hear every tiny thing in the room. He can see so well. He can see so much stuff that he has to close his eyes against it. And he can feel sort of like, you know, every tiny little dust particle on his body. And that's all great. That's really good. Well, this is amazing you know, when you think about what happens to him, this this amazing sensory perception that, you know, he can hear everything that's going on inside his body. His, mm. You know, it, like as his eyelids go across his eyes, it like hurts. It's just like, yeah. you know, he's so attuned to everything now. He's so like hyped up. Imagine what it's going to feel like when the hooks start going into it. You know? <laughs> yeah. This is the point where he's just like, oh my God, no. Oh dear. And it implies that when he closes his eyes, he's full of memories and these include lots of women who he's thinking about and he gets aroused and basically decides to masturbate in the room all over mm. the floor yeah <laughs> basically and this is this is quite important later on but he does that and he spills his load all over the floor and then he then he screams begs for it all to end yeah it's it's not even begun and it's already too much for him and then this uh, lady cenobite turns up who's got her areas exposed and she's sitting on a pile of rotting human heads Mm. that implies she killed and she's lined up their tongues on her thighs yeah so this is this is the whole thing about clive barker it's all about you know there's lots of sexual imagery sexual imagery with violence attached to it there's a lot of pleasure and pain that it's sort of bondage sadomasochism it's all right here in this opening chapter but then it sort of just moves into the story, the main story from the first film, which is Julia and it's not Larry in this. His name's Rory mm-hmm. for some reason. Don't know why that was changed, but he decided that Larry was a better name for the film. But anyways, in this one, it's Rory and Julia who are married. Mm-hmm. And we're introduced to Kirsty as well, who is not his daughter in this version. She's just a friend. Mm. And the interesting thing here is Kirsty obviously has feelings for... Rory 
romantic feelings and she's sort of jealous of Julia and she wishes that she was with him and that plays into it later on. Julia thinks that Kirsty is really dull, boring and just a dreamer who doesn't really do anything and Kirsty's just kind of full of envy really or jealousy because Julia's so beautiful and she's got Rory and Kirsty wants him. Yeah and um, the same sort of arc for Kirsty appears in the book and in the film because I think in the book she starts off, she's a bit of a drip, she's mm-hmm. kind of, you know, she's a bit of a dreamer, she's quiet, she's always looking, watching and waiting from the fringes yeah. of their friendship, uh, but she goes on to win out over the Cenobites, yeah. uh, which is a huge sort of, you know, and she comes out stronger, Definitely. Or, or perhaps more broken in some ways, and it's the same in the film, it's just that she starts as a kind of very young, naive, innocent girl, and then she still takes that same arc. Yeah, 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 definitely. So to move on slightly, Rory and Julia have now moved into this house, just like in the film. Um, but then there's a bit more time before the his blood falls on the floor. And in this version, it's not a nail on moving day. It's, they've been moved in for a while. And he actually cuts his hand with a chisel. And actually, when he does that, he shouts out hell and damnation, <laughs> <laughs> which is interesting, which is good fun. And then, just like in in the film, he's a bit of a pussy when it comes to blood, doesn't want to look at it, and thinks he's going to faint, and makes Julia do all the work. And goes up to the... Because she's been hanging out in this room they call the damp room, mm. which she's she feels something in there. She doesn't know what it is, and it sort of implies that she kind of hears a bell earlier on in it. But she's hanging out in there, and he comes up and finds her, and his blood falls on the floor. And this is where the, the masturbatory bit comes into effect from earlier on because the reason Frank can come back into the real world in this version is because his semen mixes with the blood of his brother mm. and that's the only reason that he can come back in it's not just a case of if anyone's brother's blood fell on the floor they could come back it's specifically because parts of both of them mix together yeah yeah which I can understand why they didn't include that in the film well you can't really film <laughs> Frank. <laughs> well, you could, but you know, it's a, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I think the censors would have cut that out. Who knows? They didn't film it and the censors said they couldn't keep it in. It's possible. Um, but here's a very interesting thing that they isn't mentioned in the film. Frank, as part of his hell, and it implies this is the same for everyone, as part of his hell, he's stuck looking into the room where he went to hell. And it says this happens to everyone. They can look into the real world, but there's no way of getting there. Yeah. And that's that's proper torture. I mean, that's horrific as well. Absolutely. And it sort of says that it's in between tortures, you know. It's when they've left him alone for a moment and he's yeah. still in torture. Yeah. He's, so, he's sort of like this ragged uh, skeleton thing, you know, trapped in this wall, looking into this empty room at the life that he left dreading the time that they're going to turn up again and uh, the Cenobites are going to take him again and uh, do more things to him. Speaking of his skeletal form, when he comes back in the book, he's just kind of like an eye and a spine and sort of bits dripping, Mm. which is great. I mean, I can see why they didn't want to do that in the film. They did his resurrection really well in the film. But I can see why when he first appears to Julia, he's not this, you know, it would have to be like a puppet, like Mm. a little puppet, and it would have looked a bit silly. But in a book... When your imagination is seeing everything, it's really, it's hideous, it's horrible and, and great because it speaks to her. 
Yeah, it's amazing. And it, again, it sort of makes you think, what have they been doing to him? You know, because to leave him in that kind of condition, you know, and that's the condition that he gets to wait. Mm. <laughs> I know, it, it's hideous. And, you know, you remember that he just wanted pleasure and lots of women. And he's ended up being a eye on a spine. <laughs> eye on a spine. <laughs> I think this is really where the book is a brilliant companion to the films because Clive Barker's genius is just in a couple of lines giving you a little glimpse at something that's huge but mm. then you can go away and think about you know yeah. the, the concept of um, Frank want, being completely bored with the pleasures of the world and wanting something new a new experience but then his version of experience the Cenobites version don't really go together and you just get a little glimpse at what they've done to him at what they you know what's yeah. happened to him you don't need to go too much into that, do you know what I mean? Mm. And, and your mind does all the rest of the work, and I think that's so good in this book. It's just amazing. Yeah, yeah, it's brilliant. And one thing they describe as well that um, is another bit of detail, basically, that, that you don't get from the film, but you kind of implied, is once he's escaped, he knows that they can't follow him because it's quite explicit that the Cenobites can't travel into the real world unless they're summoned by the box. So the whole idea is once you've escaped, that's it. You're out and you're free and it's done. Mm. And that's, I mean, you kind of get that from the film, but you don't actually, because he says it's only a matter of time before they find I've slipped them and they'll come looking for me. Well, I think that the, the film versus the book here is, I think in the film, it was, there's a lot more threat in terms of that when they turn up, it's no choice. They take you. Yeah. Whereas in this, they ask will you partake of our pleasures? Do you want them? You're bored. Yeah, but you wonder what they would do if you said no. No, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. But I, I got the sense in this one that it was more like, yeah, it was, you know, that you can sort of, you could say no. I'm sure they'd still take you anyway. Yeah. But do you know what I mean? And they're at least a little bit more like that. And then you get away from them mm. and you're, you're done. Yeah. That's it. If, if you escape, they can't follow you. And so you're you're out. Which makes makes sense to me, you know, versus film versus book, because the film's got to be a lot more immediate and a lot more... Yeah, of course. You know, it's got to move it on a lot more. Yeah. You've got to have that threat there to make it dramatic. So then, of course, he needs blood, and he needs Julia to kill for him. The difference here with the film and the book is she uses a knife, she gets a guy back to the house, and she stabs him to death mm. and doesn't use a hammer. And then there's this description of... The blood from the body is sort of crawling along the floor towards where Frank is, mm. and that's great. Yeah, but she's much so she's much more kind of violent. I mean, it's obviously it's premeditated in the film because the hammer's there, but in this one, it's she's chosen to stab him, and I think that's much more sort of intimate than just grabbing a hammer and just whacking him over the head. Absolutely, and again, you know, book versus film, you can see here. In the book, it's an amazing scene that you can paint in your head of mm. her stabbing someone to death and then the blood crawling out of the body towards the ruined sort of version of Frank. Mm. Whereas in the film, you know, you want her, you know, the hammer, you can see her sort of reluctance and the sort of <gasps> horror of that. But then it's great to see the skinless Frank kind of crawling across oh, the yeah. floor and yeah. sort of diving on the victim and sucking the blood out, the juice <laughs> out himself. You know, it's that's a, great. It's a sort of... That is uh, Clive Barker's genius as well in, the, in his direction in that he he knows what works in a book and mm. what works as a visual on a film. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
hellraiserpodcast at hotmail.co.uk We have eternity to know your feedback. And so he has to get her to kill more people to um, properly resurrect him. Um, but, oh, actually, that's interesting because he says he's going to start, he'll start slipping back if she doesn't manage to get him properly, fully formed. So that, there you go, that implies that you can escape, but when you're sort of half escaped, there is a chance you might slip back and they'll get you again. Yeah, and they're, they're waiting for him. You know, they know, yeah, he's, they they say, know he's gone. They say they're waiting just beyond the wall. Mm, so they know he's gone. Yeah. So then, just like in the film, Rory asks Kirsty if she'll go over and see if Julie's okay because she refuses to leave the house and she's being really odd and weird. And so Kirsty goes over and sees Julia bring in a stranger and just assumes she's having an affair or affairs. So she enters the house and ends up finding Frank, just like in the film. Well, the main difference here is he's not Uncle Frank talking to his niece. He's just a weird, skinless man. And she thinks he recognises his voice, but it sort of turns out, it implies that that's because his voice is similar to Rory's voice. Mm -hmm. Which is good to set that up now, because it then means that when he has Rory's skin on, it's more believable. Yeah. Rather than just two actors who don't sound the same, and all of a sudden he's got, you know, Larry's voice at the end of the film. Mm Mm-hmm. But he sort of comes on to her, and she's not having it because he's a monster. Well, it's amazing, isn't it, that, like, you know, this is the depths of depravity of Frank, that (laughs) he's here in this really bad situation, and as soon as he sees this other woman turn up, he instantly wants to have sex with her. Yeah, there's something about her that he finds really alluring, and it's kind of because she's sort of, you know, not perfect and beautiful, she's kind of like an everyday normal person, and he wants to... Corrupt, corrupt basically, yeah. yeah. But just like in the in the film, she eventually picks up the box and realizes he wants it, and she throws it and smashes it out the window, and she escapes. Now the good thing here, again, in a book you can describe a lot more things, and in the film, when Kirsty goes outside and picks up the box, it's kind of a bit, it's a little odd that she does that. You kind of think, why is she picking that up? Well, when I first watched it, I thought that, but in the book, it's very clear that you know this is her symbol of her managing to get away from him so she picks it up as a symbol and then carries it off with her Mm. and then she collapses and goes to a hospital just like in the film yeah but the hospital scene's different because that's really good as well that she opens the box and summons I think it's a Cenobite is one I think well this is the great bit because the reason that she can open the box is because Frank's dried blood is in the seams between the parts of the box so instead of it being completely black and you can't see how to get in it she has this tiny little road map that lets her figure out how to get into it which is brilliant the black lacquered surfaces there are tiny little marks to to help you open it but you can't see them but yeah his blood makes that's why she can open it fairly quickly because she can see where the marks are and she fiddles with them and opens it. And That's then this, great. Yeah. And then this Cenobite turns up and there's a nurse in the room as well but the nurse can't see or hear the Cenobite. And that's that's wonderful. Mm. It's great fun. And then, of course, she strikes the bargain, you know, Frank instead of me. So then, just like in the film, she ends up going back to the house to try and confront... Well, to try and warn Rory, first of all, but also try and make Frank confess but of course when she gets there it's actually Frank wearing Rory's skin Mm. oh dear and because they sound similar she doesn't think something's up until he uses the 
ever dreaded phrase come to daddy which is again he's taken straight from the book that's in the book as well which is great and she realises that's not the sort of thing Rory would say mm-hmm. and uh, realises who it is and goes off and hides now here's the one thing that I'm really glad they didn't use in the film in the book when she's hiding from him she gets hiccups <laughs> and it's almost like he's trying to find her and she's sort of hidden but she keeps sort of going <laughs> and <laughs> She's like, oh, no, I mustn't. And it's really, it's quite scary when you read it because, you know, you can put yourself in that position and you would be freaking out if you got hiccups. But in a film, that might be quite funny. Yeah, it's possible. And I'm really glad they didn't leave that in. Mm-hmm. And then she eventually manages to get him to confess that he is, in fact, Frank. And the Cenobites turn up and hooks and chains a go-go and mm-hmm. they rip him apart. They, yeah. I think it says he... He came unsown, mm. which is great. It just properly implying that they pull him taut and then just rip him into pieces. Yeah. Which, of course, they do in the film, but I think that's one of the moments that got a bit butchered by the censors, so it's not quite as graphic as it was supposed to be when they were filming it. But in a book, things are as graphic as they can be, as, as your mind will let them be. Mm. And then there's a great bit where she sees... Julia, who's managed to get into her wedding dress. I mean, we haven't mentioned the fact that Julia does get killed, like in the film. Yeah, so Frank is after Kirsty, and she manages to sort of grab Julia and pull her down in between the two of them, and that's why Julia gets killed in the book. But then after Frank's been pulled apart, it says that Julia, by some amazing act of will, managed to put her wedding dress on and the veils on her head. But then you realise that her actual head is on her lap. Mm. And the head, it implies, is that of the engineer. Mm. Who's like this sort of light underneath this wedding veil. Yeah. And he doesn't really do anything. He just sort of says, I'm the engineer. And then kind of flitters off. But then bumps into Kirsty later on. And she realises that she's been past the puzzle box. And she's holding it at the end. Mm. So that's the So the ending is different. There's no burning of the box and there's no tramp character who turns into the skeletal dragon. That's gone. Instead, she actually gets the box given back to her by the engineer. And it ends with her sort of looking at it, wondering if Rory's there and she kind of decides that he probably isn't in hell because she can sort of see reflections of Frank and Julia in it, can't she? Yeah, just for a brief moment she sees their two faces but she doesn't see Rory's. No. So she knows Rory's not there. But she decides... that is. Yeah. She decides, like you said earlier on about, you know, she watches and waits. She decides to watch and wait to see if anything happens. And this is a great bit, right at the very end, implying that there will be lots of other different puzzles that can possibly open the portal to hell, not just the puzzle box. Well, not even to hell, maybe to to wherever oh, yeah, to Rory is, Rory might be. you know. Maybe there's loads of these different things. And I think I really like this because this, to me, is kind of like... When I first read it, this implied to me that this is how the facilitators who move the boxes worked. Mm. Like, she's kind of unwittingly become one now. Even though she's gone through all this and she doesn't want any part of it anymore, she has the box and she's going to keep it. But something might happen to her. You know, this box will then get passed on to someone else. She's going to go looking for the other boxes, maybe. Who knows? Yeah. Or other puzzles. It gives the example of like a crossword puzzle, doesn't it? In this, it does, you know? yeah. Or a, or a jigsaw puzzle. Yeah, yeah, it's something, anything, you know. And 
that's how these objects are moved around the world, which I think is a great idea. Yeah, definitely. And speaking of those, it's something that's been um, explored recently in the new comic series Mm. by Boom Studios, which if you're a fan of comics and you're a Hellraiser fan, you must get these. They're really good. Mm. They're excellent. They're written by Clive Barker and another guy. And in those, there are different ways of opening the portal to hell. And Kirsty's in the story as well from the first well, it's a continuation, um, isn't it? It's the next sort of the... actual proper continuation yeah. of We're the We're not going to talk about it in detail now. We will do it on another podcast. But if you're a comic fan, you must check out these. They're coming out at the moment. There's been, I think, six at the moment. But they're, I think you talked about there being eight. Yeah. Well, if you're a Hellraiser fan, yeah, if go. you've never read a comic before, <laughs> just read them. Yeah, they're really good. You'll love it. So speaking of the comics, we are going to cover the comics on another podcast. Not just these new ones, but there are lots of old comics that Epic Comics made. And we are going to go through those as well and talk about those because some of those are really good and they, and they just open up the whole world of Hellraiser and talk about what happens in Hell or what happens to different characters and really good stuff. Mm. But that's for another time, ladies and gentlemen. And I think that about wraps up our discussion about Hellbound Heart. I think anything else you want to say about it, Phil? Um, I just think it's amazing. It's a fantastic <laughs> book. Yeah, um, go out and get it. Go and get it. <laughs> It's a brilliant companion piece to the film. If you like the film Hellraiser, you'll love this book. And it's it's a companion piece in that, like any book, it allows your imagination to fill in the blanks. And this is what I've become so jaded with, with the Hellraiser films as they went on, that they kind of tried to show certain things that didn't need to be shown. Yeah. And it's really difficult, you know, to do that. But the the way that Clive Barker works, the ambiguity in his writing, and then the really hardcore visceral stuff Hmm. the way that he writes is a very hard balance to pull off and he did it brilliantly in the first Hellraiser film and yeah I think that these two work fantastically together I completely agree yeah the book's excellent and you should all go out and buy it right now and read it because it's good so do keep all your feedback coming in like we said we're going to do a feedback podcast at some point and from now on we're going to be talking about all different aspects of the Hellraiser world and other things that Clive Barker has done and spin-off material and sort of fan fiction, that sort of thing. We're going to have got some very exciting things coming your way. So stay tuned for those, ladies and gentlemen. It's going to be a lot of fun. Good, so until next time, thanks again for listening. And thank you, Phil. Thank you, Peter. And we'll see you all soon. Take care. Bye. Bye.